Every Sunday night and into Monday, typically, the routine in my house is for Chelsea and I to discuss what exactly it is we need from the store that particular week to make our house function. There, there are the essentials on this list, right? Milk, cheese, bread, butter, raisins for ants on a log, you know, things that, that everyone needs, We always make sure to have these items in our house because without them, our house just doesn't function properly or as healthily as it could. Likewise, the church has some things that it it needs in order to function at optimal health. We're told what a few of these things are in our text this morning, which is Acts chapter 14. Verses 19 through 28. We'll see that churches need a commitment to Jesus and his mission, a culture of discipling and faithful leadership. That's your main idea. It's also reflected in your outline with those three things. So if you decide to remember the main idea this week, you'll have the outline and the whole sermon just right in your head there. I'm going to exhort you in conjunction with that, to participate in Christ's mission, encourage one another, and follow leadership. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, we ask that you would be with us in this time, that we would have ears open to hearing from your word, and that you would send your spirit to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Pray that as a consequence of our time together, we would love you more. We confess that it is worthless to grow in our knowledge of you if that knowledge doesn't lead us to a deeper worship of you and a greater affection for you. So we ask that your spirit would illumine these words and apply them to our hearts. I ask that you would enable me to preach a better sermon than I prepared and us together to listen better than we otherwise could without your help. Be present with us during this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And so we are going through the book of Acts, and we've summarized the whole book as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, I'm sorry, yeah, Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. The whole thing is about the triumph of the Word of God to the very ends of the earth. And what we've seen over and over again is that the Word of God is opposed Opposition rises up against God's messengers, and yet despite the adversity they face, the word of God prevails. The word of God spreads, and we've watched it spread out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and now it's going out to the edges and the ends of the earth. We've seen this theme emerge in the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, which kind of covers these chapters from around Acts 13 uh, to the beginning of 15. That's where we've been at the last few weeks. And and this theme has been pretty plain. As they left from Syrian Antioch, they went to Cyprus. They faced opposition, and God's word prevailed. They, They went into Antioch at Poseidon, and 
God's word was both rejected and received, both scorned and savored. Likewise, they went into Iconium, same, same thing. People are rejecting God's word, and at the same time, folks are rejoicing over the gospel. And that brings us to Lystra, which is where we left our friends the last time we were together. And they have proclaimed the gospel after healing a lame man and been welcomed very, very warmly. However, this welcome is not a good thing, right? Remember, the people in Lystra perceive or decide that Paul and Barnabas are not heralds of the one true God's gospel, but Zeus and Hermes from a pantheon of gods that they've already known. So having created their own meaning for this miracle that Paul and Barnabas performed, they seek to worship Paul and Barnabas. Remember, they tell one another in their own language, and so they're bringing sacrifice, and then all at once, Paul and Barnabas are like, wait, you're doing what? You're going to try to worship us right now? No, 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 no. And they, they tear their garments and they say, uh, repent of these things, repent, turn from these worthless things, these worthless idols, these worthless things you've given your lives to, and turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You know, put, put your faith in Jesus. Don't live for these worthless things. And we read in verse 18, even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. And that brings us to where we're going to pick things up today in verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And so apparently Paul and Barnabas are able to convince them that they're not gods, right? The crowds uh, that were wanting to worship them have very quickly turned to throw stones at them. Well, how did, how did this happen? And we understand that Paul and Barnabas had enemies and that these enemies have caught up to them. Remember, they, they made these enemies all the way back in verse 49 of chapter 13. We read, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. This is in Pisidian Antioch. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. And then in chapter 14, when they're in Iconium, verse 5, an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. They found out about it and fled to the Laconian towns of Lystra and Derbe. And so here in Lystra, their enemies catch up to them. And through whatever means, somehow they convince the crowds that they ought not worship Paul and Barnabas. They ought not listen to Paul and Barnabas, but they ought to kill Paul and Barnabas. I don't know how Barnabas gets lucky here. He's not around. But they decide to stone Paul. They want to put an end to this Jesus movement. And you can't help but see the irony here. That Paul, who was the great persecutor of Christians and followed them from Jerusalem to try and persecute them, is now the one who is being persecuted as a consequence of witnessing to Jesus. And we see kind of what's happened in Lystra 
The crowds definitely didn't get the message at all. And Paul has been stoned, dragged out and left for dead. And we ask the question, has Paul screwed this thing up? Has Paul somehow failed? And the answer is no. In fact, he looks a lot like Jesus. And the pattern of his ministry has been very similar. Rejoicing over his, his message and rejection of his message. Remember, Jesus went into the same city, into Jerusalem, and was met with shouts of, Hosanna in the highest. He was welcomed with the waving of palm branches. And then he was expelled and sent out with a cross on his back. And he was ultimately rejected as he died on Calvary's hill. Well, Jesus certainly wasn't a failure. You see, opposition to God's mission does not mean that God is not present or that God is not at work. Opposition and hardship do not mean that God's mission has failed. Paul suffers because God is sovereign enough to use even the sins of man to bring about his purposes. The cross is the chief example of this, right? Men and women sinfully reject Jesus. They sinfully kill him on the cross. And God takes that same cross, that symbol of rejection and weakness, and he uses it for our salvation. For the salvation of all who will trust in Christ. He turns their sinful actions into something wonderful. He produces glory from this suffering. And he's able to do that in our lives as well. Following Jesus does not mean you will not suffer. It does not mean you will not face hardship. In fact, it means the opposite. Jesus says plainly in Luke 9, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. See, following Jesus means being united to Jesus. So that his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. Following Jesus means that that physical death for the Christian doesn't finish with the grave. It's not the last word. Because the Christian will be raised bodily like the Savior in whom he's trusted. This is why Paul can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the God who made us. What this does is it frees us to live for God's mission and God's purpose and God's will in our lives. It allows us to say together with Paul, as he does in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We can follow God's mission boldly, knowing that suffering and hardship may come. They probably will come. We just have to live long enough. And at the same time, that suffering and that hardship isn't God saying, I don't love you, or you have screwed up. That's a really bad way of thinking. Friends, as imperfect as your evangelism might be, as imperfect as your lives might be, you must be encouraged that God redeems all of it. God uses all of it. He is sovereign over your suffering. He's sovereign over your hardship. And what that means is that you can confidently trust Him in the worst of circumstances. It means that when a hail of stones is falling on your head and you are being dragged outside of a city, metaphorically, that you can trust what God is doing even in that suffering. You can say, God is going to use this for my good and his glory. He's that good, he's that sovereign. Indeed, he is awesome. I'm trying to say, you may feel like a failure. I'm sure Paul, I'm guessing here, I feel like Paul probably would have felt like a failure at this point, right? At least if he's a cynic like I am. I showed up to this, every city I've gone to has expelled me and rejected me. Here, I can't even get them to turn to Jesus. They try to worship me. I really must have screwed up that message. Now they've killed him. They think they've killed him. Friends, sometimes what looks like failure, maybe even in your own eyes or, or failure in the world's eyes, is not failure at all. God can use it. God can use you. He redeems all of that. And so when you feel like a failure, when you feel rejected, don't believe it. Look to Jesus. Remember that declaration of God who has said to you in Christ, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased can't impress this upon you enough, that God loves you as much on your best day as he does on your worst day. And he loves you just as much when you are in seasons of fruitfulness and contentment as he does when you are suffering tremendously and extremely discontent. He loves you when you are in the middle of life and you're full of vigor. And he loves you at the end of life when you can't change your own bedpan. God loves you and he's using your life from the very moment it is conceived until the moment you breathe your last breath to bring himself glory. He's sovereign over it. Opposition and hardship or things not kind of falling out the way you expected, that doesn't mean that God is not at work. He is at work. He's sovereign and his purposes never, ever fail. Sometimes we can't see how he will accomplish his will. Oftentimes we cannot understand it, what good might come from this. But we can know that each and every time, when we look back from eternity on everything that God has done, we will be able to say it was good and it was right 
and that he was at work. And he is at work in Paul's life. I think sometimes when things go kind of how they've gone for Paul here, we would be tempted to, to quit on the Christian life. I don't think we should. Like, don't, don't, get, don't allow hardship or suffering to stop you. Don't allow suffering or hardship or your failure to cause you to kind of throw in the towel on following Jesus. That's certainly not what Paul does. Look at, at verse 20. And before I read, I always think, I don't know, maybe it is in your Bible or not. They, paragraphs are often broken up different here, depending on which version you have and their editors. But I really just feel like there should be like three pages of just blank between verse 19 and verse 20. A little bit like sometimes if you've ever watched a TV show and it ends, like Dukes of Hazard style and the car's in the air, like are they going to make this jump? And like, find out next week or next season. Because you, would they think Paul is dead? He's stoned. And then all of a sudden, verse 20, after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch strengthening the disciples. Drop down to verse 24. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And after they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And after they had arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. This really is incredible. Paul is, is stoned and, and left for dead. And the disciples gather around him. I, I don't know if they were praying for him or just like, all right, like, you know, when they close someone's eyes and they're dead, they, they, they think he's dead too. And all at once we just see, he got up and he went back into the town. I don't, I don't know if he's got supernaturally healed here or maybe he was dead and he's supernaturally raised and then he goes back into the town and everything's all good or if he's injured and he's got cuts and scars and blood everywhere and he just kind of gets into town the best he can with the help of others but either way he goes back into the town that had stoned him and then continues on the mission of God it, again it's, it's, a, it's incredible almost like so Paul you just he just went back into the town that stoned you and you know, got a room at the Hampton and uh, had some nice cookies and some milk and you know, drinking your, your glass of milk, looked over at Barnabas and he said, hey boy, that escalated quickly, didn't it? And then, then just getting right back after it. Right? He goes right back to preaching the gospel, making disciples and gathering those disciples into churches. See, Paul models for us what it looks like to be devoted to Christ and his mission. Paul is about the mission of God. Are we? Are you? I mean, do you know what the mission is? Mission isn't everything that you do as a Christian, right? If mission is everything, then it's nothing. Yes, it's, it's good to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's good to uh, 
feed the poor. It's good to build wells in other countries. It's good to adopt children. It's, it's good to do all these things. There's many, many good things we can do and should do. The second commandment demands it of us. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's God's people. We are those who want to adorn the gospel with good works. But those good works must never be confused with the good news, which is the gospel. Our primary mission, we're to do all those other things. We're to do good things. I want to be clear on that. But the primary mission of the church is to make Christ known. The mission of the church, God's mission is for the gospel to be proclaimed, for disciples to be made, and for those disciples to be gathered into churches so that they might worship Jesus and obey his commands. Jesus makes this plain, right? Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, with all authority in heaven and on earth, commissions us, his church, to go and to make disciples, to preach the gospel. That is, tell people the good news that God so loved the world that he became a man and died for the sins of each and every person who would trust in him. And he rose from the dead so that we don't have to fear death. This is the good news. That the God who created everything that we had rejected doesn't give us what we deserve, which is condemnation, but instead what we don't deserve, redemption. That's that's the good news. Christ brings redemption to all who repent of their sins. Stop living their way. And follow him. Start living his way. That's great news. That's what we're to take to the nations. Say this mission is restated kind of in miniature in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts. Almost every week when we're reviewing context, I appeal to it where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are witnessing about the resurrection of Christ, about the defeat of sin, about freedom from slavery to sin. This is what they're witnessing about. Everywhere they go, it's all about the word of God prevailing. They show up somewhere and they preach the word. They make disciples. Paul and Barnabas and the church are all about preaching the gospel, making disciples, and gathering those disciples into churches. This is why at the beginning of chapter 13, they start out in the first place. Right? Remember, uh, They're at Antioch, they're worshiping together. In verse 2, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The work that he's called them is to take this good news to the nations, to these cities that we've seen them visit. And that's what they're giving themselves to. And they have been expelled out of one city, They had to flee another because of a plot to stone them. And and Paul is stoned here. But it's all worth it because of the mission. 
It's worth it because Jesus is worth it. And Paul and Barnabas want everyone to know this Jesus who is supremely valuable, who gives a joy that is unassailable. It's so unassailable, in fact, that it can't be defeated by persecution. I do love at the end of 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out of the district and we read, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There is a joy in Christ that cannot be snatched away even in the midst of the greatest possible pain you could experience. That's what missions is about. Do you ever think about that? The, the mission of the church is, is about the joy of the nations. But John Piper has written a wonderful little book called Let the Nations Be Glad wherein he argues that that missions exist because worship does not. And his point is that Jesus Christ is supremely valuable. We were made to worship him and to understand our lives lives in light of him. And that in knowing Jesus is where we will find our deepest satisfaction, our greatest joy. You see, the goal is, of missions is the gladness of the nations in the greatness of God. The goal is that everybody would come to know our beautiful and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, that He would receive the worship He is worthy of. This is an excellent mission. This is what we are to be about as a church. All of us as Christians must participate in this mission. I always say you can be involved in more than one way, and sometimes you'll be involved in multiple ways in your life and different ways at other seasons of your life. But, but we have to, so we have to pray that Jesus would be known in our community and around the world, to pray not only for fruit in our church, but in other churches, to pray that Christ would be known in Nelson County and in Nova Scotia. But we want Jesus' name to be known. The second way is we give. Give financially so that our money can go and help Jesus be known in places that we never will live. That churches can be planted in places that we will never go. This is how the Christian can contribute to God's work in two places at once. By being a minister in their own home, in their own culture, their own situation, and enabling someone else who was called outside to, to another place to live. Enabling missionaries to minister where God has called them. And it brings us to, to the third way, which is to witness. To tell people about Jesus where we are, where you live. Or, if you're one of those people that God has called to live somewhere else, where he might call you to live. All of us must pray Give and witness, whether our witnessing is where we live or where God has called us to live in the future. We must be part of God's mission. It's it's not an optional part of the Christian life. This is something that Jesus has commanded us to do. We want to be about God's mission. To be about making the world see just how beautiful Jesus is.
Helping the world come to know the God they were made for. Certainly Paul and the church at Antioch were all about this mission. I mean, notice there in, in 24 through 28 as they make their way home, they, they get the whole church at Antioch together, a church that has prayed for them and been praying for them, and they give a report on what has happened. That, that church in Antioch cares about the missionaries they've sent out. That church at Antioch cares about the work of God around the world. They, they care about what's going on outside of their walls. And so too should we. We want to be a church that is committed to Jesus and his mission. We also see that Paul and Barnabas are committed to creating a culture of discipling. Let me try to show you what I mean here in verse 22. I'm going to start in 21, actually. After they preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And this is really, really incredible. Geographically, after Paul is stoned, they could just go home fairly quickly. I think it's like 140 miles to a place where they can catch a ship and then get the rest of the way home. But instead, what they do is they retrace their steps. They retrace their steps and go back to every church that they had already begun to plant because they care about the health of those churches. They want to strengthen those churches by encouraging them to continue in the faith. The phrase, the faith there, reveals to us that there's already a body of doctrine that defines who a Christian is. That there is a content to Christianity. And Paul and Barnabas want to ensure that these churches are maturing appropriately. Right? This makes sense. So if you have a, a child who is in diapers as a baby, that's normal. You don't worry about it, right? Everything's good. But if you have a child who is 16 and is wearing diapers, normally, you're, that's not okay. Something is wrong. Something's gone amiss in the maturation process of the, as they've grown up and developed. And Paul and Barnabas want to make sure that these churches are set up to mature properly. I want to provide them with nourishment and nurturing. And the first thing they do is to encourage them. Encourage them to continue in the faith. And something really important to note here is they don't come back to town and visit each of these Christians in their homes individually. right? These Christians are gathering together. Like, in the New Testament, to be a Christian is to belong to a local church. The word church means assembly. So the idea of a Christian that doesn't regularly assemble together with other Christians is, is foreign to biblical Christianity. These folks are gathering, they're getting together at churches as churches. And Paul wants to ensure, Barnabas wants to ensure that they are growing in the faith. Encouragement 
is really just a way that we help one another follow Jesus. That's a good definition of discipling. Maybe that word is too churchy for us. But when I say a culture of discipling, what discipling means is it's just helping other people follow Jesus. That's it. You can do that in a myriad of ways. And the way they do it is by encouraging them to learn about, continue in the faith, which just means learn this doctrine, grow in this doctrine, and live this doctrine out. Love one another. Genuinely. Rejoice with one another. Endure hardships. I think the, the best way we can encourage one another is by reminding one another time and time again that Jesus does indeed love us. Right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Reminding one another that when we were captive to our sin, that Jesus came and slayed the dragon, that he stepped on the serpent's head and set us free from sin's chains. We need to be reminded that Jesus has defeated death, that this, this life, this, this world is not all there is that there are unseen realities around us all the time, and that God is at work. We need to remind one another that everything exists for God's glory, for Christ. And Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. We remind one another with just classic hymns. That's one of the reasons I love hymns. You can remember some of the words. But I always think of Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, one of the lines is, is, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. I love that. We remind one another in songs, part of what we do sometimes when we gather here, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Or, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. We encourage one another when we gather together and remind one another of these wonderful truths of the gospel. We tell one another the good news about Christ, that we have been adopted into the family of God when we only deserved Judgment from God. It's, it's incredible. We, we want to remind one another that it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That though there is weeping sometimes for the night, that joy comes in the morning. And use passages like first, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 18. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so you can see Paul and Barnabas encouraging these churches, focus on what is unseen because it is eternal. It is what will last. Your bodies may be breaking down, maybe deteriorating, but your inner self is being renewed day by day. You are going to be raised bodily with Christ to live forevermore. And so you can live right now by faith in the Son of God for His glory, on His mission. Even in the midst of hardships. Another way we can encourage one another I guess a requirement of encouraging one another, a requirement of discipling, a requirement of helping one another follow Jesus is to be together. We can't encourage one another if you're not with one another. Maybe an example like, uh, most of you all are pretty connected to me. I don't know. I don't think that's because I'm a nice guy or anything. I just think it's because I live right next to the church and one of the elders here, and so people come and they, you know, they just are interested in my life sometimes. Uh, and so just a great example. When we got back from our trip, everybody was like, hey, they have the flu. Let's try to bring them some food. And so people brought me food throughout the week. And I was like, that's great. I can't help but think like, you know, I don't know how many, some of you have probably got the flu before, but I don't know that people are knocking on your door delivering pizzas or Uh, cornbread was one of my favorite things that came, or soup. My hope is is that would be true, that we would all be that connected. My my mailbox got knocked off of its, whatever it's called, that it sits upon, post. It was unmoored from its place, and somebody came and fixed it. I don't even know who it was. Okay? I hope that would be y'all's experience too, that we would be connected enough with one another to see what's going on in one another's lives, And not only meet these physical needs, but more importantly, encourage one another to pursue Christ. And sometimes meeting physical needs can be an encouragement to pursue Christ. Because in meeting physical needs, we are showing one another the love of Christ. So, eat together. (laughs) Go to breakfast, have lunch, make dinner. Set up a phone call once a week with someone. Five minutes, pray. Get to get, maybe you are struggling with having your quiet time and you find someone else and say, hey, can I come to your house or can we get together and go somewhere and read the Bible together once or twice a week? Maybe every day, I don't, I don't know. But find ways to connect with one another. Don't live in isolation. If you live in isolation from one another, you will not be able to fully experience the blessing that comes with obeying the commands that God has given to us to love one another genuinely. We will, we will miss out on discipling one another. We will miss out on the blessing of helping one another to follow Jesus faithfully. Paul and Barnabas stop by back at each of these churches and encourage them to continue in the faith. Let us encourage one another. And lastly, we see in verse 23 that they appoint elders. They appoint elders. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
And so one of the things that is a priority for Paul and Barnabas is to establish faithful leadership in the churches that they have planted. They've taught them, and now they're kind of backtracking, and they are appointing leaders, and the leaders in this text are called elders. The New Testament does some fun things here, sometimes confusing, but it uses three words to refer to the same office, okay? Same area of responsibility. And so here the word is elders. There's actually only one place that it's called pastor, right? Although we do see the term shepherd elsewhere. And then the other one is overseers, or maybe you've heard it translated bishop, right? And so elders are the same thing as pastors, are the same thing as overseers. And uh, Jeremy Rhine has given us a wonderful way of remembering this. He says, biblically defined, elders are pastors who are overseers. I don't know if that's helpful to you or not. Maybe it will be. But I am am an elder, a pastor, or an overseer here at at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. That's my role here. It's what what David is. It's what Mike is. It's what we do. It's not... Sometimes I think when I first came here, I would used to say, well, I'm an elder here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church like every week as if there were like hundreds of new people coming and you guys didn't know who I was. But one of the things I, I think that was running through folks' mind was like, you're not that old. What? What? You're talking about like, that's not what, what elders are in the scriptures. These are, these are God's leaders in his church. And primarily we see them, see uh, God's leaders teaching and praying, and leading, right? This is what's what, that's what the role is. And, we, and notice, this is really important, is that there is more than one. Right? A lot of churches only have one pastor, and I, I think typically that's just, it's because they haven't been taught this, or I imagine they have good reasons. I want to think the best of other churches. We don't want to be you know, arrogant towards them. But, but I do think this is clearly taught in the Bible. That every time we see elders and churches mentioned, there's a plurality of them, there's more than one of them in each church. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how many you have to have. It just seems to be more than one. And that makes sense. It makes really, really good sense that there would be more than one leader to care for God's church. It protects us in a number of ways. There are a million pragmatic reasons. Uh, which I'll refer you to my, my sermon on the topic. It's Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, you can uh, look it up. It's on our website because I don't have time to go into all those pragmatic reasons right now. But trust me when I say it's, it's really good. I do want to talk about some of the things that elders do. So I'm going to read to you a few passages, give you a few exhortations, and then close. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over to those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So we see the elders shepherd, they oversee. They are examples. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so once more, elders are those who teach, who pray, and who lead in the church. And 
if we are to grow as a church, we need to submit ourselves to our leadership. If we are a fellowship that cannot trust our leaders, that's problematic. Mark Dever has said, a congregation that cannot trust its leaders needs to replace them. And so if there ever comes a time where you go, and Justin is out of his mind, you know, we think he's wrong biblically here, then you need to replace me, right? So that you can have a good leader who is faithful to the scriptures, teaching you God's word, shepherding you towards Christ's likeness. This is the role of the church, is to follow godly leaders. Hebrews 13 tells us of this. I'll read you verse 7 and then verse 17. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The Bible calls us to follow godly leadership. And I think sometimes this idea of of authority and leadership in our culture rubs us the wrong way. We live in kind of an anti-authority age. But biblically, authority is always for a blessing. It's always for our good. So you might think of um, the first encounter you probably had with authority as a child. Your parents were there as authorities in your life, and they acted in order to maximize your joy if they were good parents. They were about blessing you. Can authority be misused? Absolutely. Can it be abused? Yes. But does that mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater? No. We should look for godly leaders and delight in submitting to them. That would be for our joy and for their joy. I want to be clear here. Elders, pastors, are not perfect. Almost everybody knows me enough to know that that's not true. Like if there was any uh, thought of, oh, the, the pastors are really, really perfect people. You've been around my life enough to know now that's just not true. Elders are not, um, they're Christians. They're Christians that have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We need Jesus just as much as anyone else. And so um, it's helpful, I think, not to elevate the position of pastor or elder uh, to a place that God doesn't intend it to be. At the same time, we want to honor those in leadership. The way we honor them, God says, is through following their leadership, obeying them, submitting to them, insofar as they are obeying Christ. If our elders are good elders, they will be exercising authority for blessing. They will be following the example of the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. Right? This, is what Christ, this is how Christ serves the church. It's very similar when we think about marriage in Ephesians 5. Right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It gives husbands some measure of authority there. And you go, oh, that's terrible. It's not. It's good. It's for blessing. Because they're to love their wives like Jesus loved the church. And Jesus gave his life for the church. Likewise, good godly leaders will be giving themselves up for your good, for the good of the church, because this is what Jesus does. 
And it is a, a joy to follow that kind of leadership. And so in response to this text, we want to resolve to commit ourselves to following faithful leadership. In, in these verses, we kind of have God's plan for making his name known, dramatized for us. Churches are planted. The gospel is shared. Forgiveness of sins is offered to all those who will turn to the living God. Let's follow this model. Let's give ourselves to committing to Christ and his mission, to creating a culture of discipling, helping one another follow Jesus, and to following faithful leadership in our church. All to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for gathering us together in this church as your family. You have called us to live in this place at this time. We pray that we might honor you and bring you glory by loving one another well, by reminding one another of the gospel, reminding one another that indeed Jesus was crucified for sins, And he has been raised from the dead so that we no longer have to fear death. Father, help us to to live our lives for you. Help us to obey your word. Your commands are not burdensome. They're for our joy. They're how we love you back. Indeed, you have loved us in a way that is, is beyond measure. We thank you for this, and we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.